Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present an interview of Christos with Franz Trapanier. My name is Joshua Whitehead, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, the Bigani, and Gainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We also acknowledge the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. This interview of Christos by Franz Trapanier was recorded during a tea house symposium called Wisdom Council in September 2019. Wisdom Council recognized the imperfect knowledge transmission methods of the colonial system, and, particularly, the ways it has tended to fragment non-Western knowledges and privilege the textual over the oral. Using a combination of traditional and contemporary practices, it brought together a small council of mostly BIPOC senior practitioners in the contemporary arts to sit in council over three days to discuss such topics as what our communities need now, memory and forgetting, care of elders in racialized communities, stories of the past, present, and future, stories in cyclical time, community formations they've experienced, community formations they remember, how they understand the work that needs to be done, and practices and strategies that might be of use or interest in the present moment. This particular interview was recorded as part of the gathering's work. Christos is a Menominee poet and activist and was born in San Francisco. In her work, she examines themes of feminism, social justice, and Native rights. She is the author of several collections of poetry, including Not Vanishing, Dream On, and Firepower. Christos's work has been featured in the anthologies This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color, and Living the Spirit, a Gay American Indian Anthology. With Tristan Taormino, she co-edited the anthology Best Lesbian Erotica, 1999. Franz Trapanier is a visual artist and curator of Gonageha and French ancestry. She is currently guest curator at Open Space in Victoria. Franz is also co-director of the Primary Colors Initiative, which seeks to place Indigenous arts at the center of the Canadian art system. Franz also co-authored with Chris Creighton-Kelly, Understanding Aboriginal Art in Canada Today, a Knowledge and Literature Review for the Canada Council for the Arts. She is co-chair of the Indigenous Program Council at the BAM Centre. In this interview, you'll find both Franz and Christos speaking on identity, seeing, and media, quote-unquote, the word, how it works, how it becomes famous, its thieberies, its saviorhood, language and translation, a history of reading from Plato and Greek Roman classics, on quote-unquote giving thanks and carrying memory, on BIPOC women erasure, on how to remember the future, allyship, publishing, academia, and finally, love and anger.
Well, before we start, I would like to offer some tobacco to you. Oh, thank you. Because this is a real honor for me to be doing this. Um, I know it was, I, I didn't choose to, to, you know, we didn't choose the pair, the right. pairing. Right. But I'm very, very honored to be able to do this. Um, and I'm really grateful. So I want to put tobaccos in your hand and thank you. And I also have that um, little grandfather that comes from Namgis territory in Ellard Bay on Vancouver oh. Island. And I'd like to put that in your hand too as a promise of your visit to the island soon. Yeah. Y you know, uh, I love rocks. Every, every time I move, I have to move my rocks. They're the first things that go to my new garden and, and make the bed and so on. And the last time when I moved with Sunny, she joked with me that we were never moving again because she didn't want to have to lift all those rocks because I have some big ones that have to be rolled up onto the... But I love rocks. They're, you know, I have bowls of rocks in my house that have special meaning to me. So mm. this is going to go in a special bowl. <laughs> Thank you so much. Miigwech. Yeah. Um, Christos, maybe the first thing that I would ask is for, um, for you to tell us who you are mm. and what you do, um, just to s locate the, the uh, listener. Right. Uh, I would say that my first identity is with words because when I was a child, I had a very violent, violent childhood and words were my haven. I used to go to the library all the time because it was so quiet there and um, the lady at the library let me check out the adult books. She didn't make me stay in the children's section, so... I wish I could remember her name because I owe her so much, you know. And so when I think of myself, I don't think of myself as a sex or, or a nation or uh, a woman. I think of myself as words, you know. That, that Literally, that's mm -hmm. who I am, is words. We had to make a mask of ourselves one time in an art class. And... Uh, my hands to me are like my souls because that's what I write and draw with. And so when I made the mask, I actually made a mask of my hands and put them on the face part because I couldn't not make it with my hands. And the teacher didn't like it, but anyway. <laughs> so, so being a writer is, for me, the, the center of my existence. That's, you know, my best friend is my journal, my, my way of uh, enduring all kinds of things and enjoying all kinds of things is, is through the word. And my most important way of being with the word is doing readings because when you do a reading, your soul and the soul of the people there are, are mingled and quiet. But... Um, so I would describe myself as a wordsmith and, and, and a person who is perhaps unhealthily obsessed with, with the word and, and how the word shapes us, both spiritually and, uh, and emotionally. And the, the things that are my labels are just kind of like uh, 
snakeskins. You know, they're they're not really they're to be shed because labels are so uh, limiting. And and I see myself as part of a long line of words. And uh, my my father taught me to read from the Greek and Roman myths, right? So my part of the reason I think my poetry can be so um, I don't know, not violent, but uh, certainly visceral, is that that's what I, you know, learned. The first words I read were about, you know, Medea and, you know, uh, people eating each other in soup and, you know, all that kind of stuff that the Greek and Roman myths are full of, you know. So, uh, and, and so because my father taught me to read, I have a special relationship with the word because, uh, despite everything, uh, I love him, I love him deeply. He's he's in the stars now, but uh, you know the violence is also like a snakeskin. You know, y- you shed it and and um, come to understand that he didn't know what else to do. He literally did not know what else to do. That's how he had come into the world being hit and, and all of that. And he was in Indian boarding school, so he had a, a lot of uh, scars that never had a chance to heal. And so in contrast to my father, I'm very lucky because I've had a chance to try and heal those scars, to be able to even see them. I mean, I don't think that a lot of times people can see their own scars. They, have, they, they live not even recognizing them as scars. And... Uh, so I've had the opportunity to, to look, uh, not just at myself, but at the whole arc of how I came to be in this place at this time. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think of the atomic bomb as a part of my personal history because my parents met as a result of World War II. They wouldn't have met otherwise, and and that that event was happened only a few months before they got married. They were married in uh, November of 1945, and I was born a year later. And uh, so it's like that that event was still happening. You know, people were still uh, suffering and uh, raking up rubble when I was born. So, so how I see myself is very different from how I am named in, you know, in the public way. Um, and it's been very hard for me to accept that public persona that has been laid on me as someone who's brave and strong and revolutionary and all this kind of stuff because I feel like just like most of the time I'm terrified that I'm going to offend someone or that I'm going to do something wrong or that I'll be late and everyone will leave without me or, you know, I I mean, most of the time I'm not very brave, you know. (laughs) So when people say to me, oh, you're so strong, I'm kind of looking at them like, what are you exactly talking about, you know? Yeah. To go back just for a sec on on your love of words and love of the language, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious to know if, I mean, we all know that um, the Americas were colonized right. um, by other people, and, and one of the, the effect of the colonization has been the imposition of colonial languages, right. and English is one of them, and French is another one, and yeah. Spanish is another one, yeah. right? 
Um, and so I'm, I'm curious to know if, if in that love of words you feel attention or because oh, yes. you're expressing yourself with the English language, which right. is a colonial language. Right. I've written actually poems about, about that, that tension and how, uh, as languages go, at least in my very, not very deep understanding of languages, English is one of the more um, hierarchical and brutal languages. And it has very few words for the nuances of life. In fact, French nuance is a French word. Do you see what I'm saying? Exactly that. Uh, so, so I spoke French as a child, uh, as I mentioned to you before, but when I got into school, I had to speak English. I mean, and I was put in the class because I was having trouble understanding what the nuns were saying. And um, when they would be reading C. Dick Jump, I was bored. And so I had one of my father's books under the desk, you know, and they would be <laughs> reading C. Dick Jump and, and I would be sort of reading under there this. And then they'd say, okay, now, Christina, you. And I'd be like, what, what? <laughs> and I had no idea where they were or what they were doing. And so until, uh, I guess... The second grade, I was in the class. <clears throat> anyway, um, so then they decided to, the, school, the state decided that everyone had to have their IQs tested when in the second grade. And they tested my IQ, and it was 160, and they were terrified of me because they didn't know what to do with me. But I had 160 IQ because I'd been reading my father's books, you know, for like three years. And I didn't. I mean, I didn't understand Plato, really, but I read him, and so I knew how the words looked on the page, and I knew what they meant, although I could not pronounce them, which is still true today. So I'll be talking along, and somebody will correct me because I've said something wrong. But um, the, So then they decided that I should go to a special school, but my mother didn't want me to go to a special school, and so they had me become the person who was in charge of putting displays up in all the classrooms. So I would make the display that A is Apple and, you know, all that stuff. So my education was very um, much myself. Unconventional. Yeah, very unconventional. And uh, there was only one other Indian kid in, in the school, and she was a year ahead of me and uh, a very beautiful, beautiful girl, and everybody loved her, you know, she was very slender and sort of exotic looking, and and I was just sort of this schlub, and they hated my guts, and I hated them, <laughs> and, you know, I went through a lot of uh, violence, and, you know, not only at home, but also at school, and what what I took away from that is not liking school, but loving books, and uh, so I read all the books in my father's library and all the books that were in the local library. And then I, I guess when I was about oh, 12 or 13, I started getting jobs where I would earn money. You know, I washed floor, kitchen floors and so on. And then I bought my own books. And I still have some of those books now. And um, what's really interesting is the first, one of the first books I bought was called The Well of Loneliness. I had no idea it was about lesbians, none. I thought it was about loneliness, right? It's like the well of loneliness. Well, I'll understand this, right? 
<laughs> so I was, you know, like, I guess 13 and, and discovered there were lesbians and decided I did not want to be a lesbian because it was such a tragic, it's a very tragic story, you know, and it's like, well, I don't want to do that. And uh, then, of course, I became a lesbian when I was about 17 or 18 and and have been busy not living the well of loneliness ever since. But I have a huge library. When I, when I moved from San Francisco, I had uh, 20,000 pounds of books. <laughs> the, and the, the, um, the moving guys were, were saying, they were bringing out these boxes and boxes of books, and, 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 and he said something I've never forgotten. He said, lady, you need to get rid of some of these books. You know? and I was like, no, 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 I need them all, because I do reread books, you know, and uh, find out new things that I didn't see before. You know, the word is, is uh, a mystery, really. Mm-hmm. I wish that I still could s- that I could speak my own language uh, but right now my cognitive abilities to learn new things are kind of I'm not sure how well I would do with that I mean I'm trying to from my concussion I'm trying to get back uh, into that way by doing things like mending and, and things that require that kind of concentration so I'm hoping that I can still continue to learn but but it's hard it's it's hard to learn after a certain point i mean not only is your body not as agile as it was your mind isn't as either and uh i i have a lot of opinions that are um not politically correct and so on and sort of try to disguise those as best i can because i am aware of being old in in uh not just in my thinking, but old in my reference points, right? That mm-hmm. that I'm still thinking about the full moon collective that happened when I was 25 years old and, and how women working together to create something was a source point of my life and how I can't seem to recreate that in any way. And it, it makes me really sad. You know, I, I long for that, um, working together as a group to create something uh, situation and it just it doesn't it doesn't happen very often in in the life that we live. That's true. Um, in in Odinoshni's worldview, one of the very important principles is thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Right, that the words before all else is is about giving thanks. Yeah, and and it's an attitude. It's a way of being in the world of of just being thankful, and. While we were talking yesterday, it struck me that despite all the difficult moments and despite the difficult situations and conditions and events, um, your spirit is thankful. Oh, yes. That that there's so much um, grace in, in... in your presence, mm-hmm. um, and I'm just wondering if you'd like to talk a little bit about about that. How part of the gratefulness is driven by by the deaths that I have survived. So, when I was a young woman, I was very, very lucky and blessed, and came into contact with Audrey Lord and 
Pat Parker and Gloria Anzaldúa and Beth Brandt and uh, a, a whole world of women who are now passed on. And the urgency that we all carried that we were going to change the world, of course. <laughs> we did some, but not so much. Um, and, and the vision that we shared. Um, I think Audrey particularly was important to me because she was the first African descent person I ever met who understood indigenous struggle. So this is years, years ago. This is like, uh, it's been 40 years ago now before anybody ever even talked about it. And that was almost our first conversation, is her, her asking me questions about m my nation and how you know, we were struggling. And, it, and at the time, we were, uh, <clears throat> oh, I can't even say the word, <clears throat> terminated <clears throat> as a tribe, that we fought to change that. But it was a, a really horrific a lot of destruction happened as a result of that. <clears throat> and there's a book called Menominee Drums that talks about uh, that coming back. But Audrey was someone who was aware of indigenous people, which was not common. I mean, I was used to going into a room and having to declare, you know, I'm Menominee, you know, I'm an Indian, shut up, you know, or, or some variation of that, you know, and, and <laughs> um, feeling as though, and having people say, well, what's Menominee, you know, who are you, you know, and because our tribe is not very well known and they never made a car out of us, you know, so we're not, <laughs> we're not <laughs> well known like the Cherokees. So anyway, I feel like the poor Cherokees had changed their tribal name to Jeep. <laughs> but anyway, so those women that I wrote with, and alongside of, and read with, you know, orally, th that, that was uh, this vast, beautiful earth that I belonged to. And as they all died, that earth eroded. And, and now I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out ways to bring them back into what I am trying to do. So I have a couple of times read uh, poems by Audrey and had the really strange experience of saying to an audience this is called Litany for Survival it was written by Audrey Lord. it's one of the greatest poems of the 20th century and I read the poem and then everyone thinks that I wrote it I mean it's just it's like they can't hear what what's happening so I'm trying to figure out how to have that not happen right because I don't want to have people thinking that I wrote this amazing poem. I didn't. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm trying to figure out how to carry forward my memories of, of these women and how powerful they were in my life because who I am is also them. I mean, they, they made me in a way. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm concerned about that, that history disappearing because... Uh, you know, after, even after all this time, as far as I know, there's no book out about Audrey's poetry. There's no critical literary book about her poetry. And I keep thinking, you better get busy and write it yourself. You know, you don't, won't know what you're doing, but do it, you know, because otherwise it's not going to happen. You know, there's, there's this way in which 
particularly women of color, are erased in history over and over and over again. You know, when I was in college briefly, I was startled to discover that there was uh, there was other Indian women who had been writing in the 1850s and were going around lecturing to people. It's like, who would know that, you know? So I want to not be erased myself, and I want to have the people that I love not also be erased. And and it's, you know, in the in the strumposphere, that's what I call them, strumpet, um, it's, it's extremely hard to find any support for that. Mm-hmm. Most, most people in the United States are so frightened by, by the divisions that are apparent now that that's all they can think about. I mean, when you watch the news, literally, on US TV, you never go five minutes without his picture on the screen. You, it's just like, it's, it's a, a mania. Even when someone else is speaking about him, they put his picture on the screen instead of the person who's speaking. You know, It's just this, I mean, it's like the media has this fascination with him, the same fascination that the literary world has with Hitler, right? They're still writing books about Hitler. Still, why would you write about that man yeah. or a- anything that he did? I mean, it's historical, but why would you write about it, you know, and consider it? And it makes me nuts. Yeah. <laughs> and while the media is giving him so much attention, everybody's looking this way so they can do things the other way. Right, right exactly. Yeah. I want to pick up on, on remembering because it feels that it's been... Um, a recurring theme of our conversations in the past few right. days. How do we remember? Yeah. Um, and how do we remember the future? Um, and I'm I'm thinking of um, the new generations of of beautiful, strong Indigenous women, Indigenous people in general, um, women of color. Um, how do we how we how do we tell the stories? Well, I'm thinking that I have to write write books, you know, because as imperfect as books are, they're, they last, at least in this paper culture. It's rapidly becoming a non-paper culture. But uh, So I, I pretty much decided that I, I have to not so much write about my, my own life as write about what I experienced um, in, in collaboration with with other women and how, you know, for instance, um, I became really close to a diabetic woman who was blind. And before that point, I had never thought a word about disability. I, absolutely oblivious. I mean, I have a lot of physical disabilities myself, but they're the hidden kind, right? It's like, I can't hear well, but I can read lips at the same time someone's speaking, but if they turn away, I don't know what they've said. So, um, and I have mental disabilities and so on, but the, the impact of Nancy's uh, effect on me was profound. You know, she without really doing very much other than being my friend, got me to understand so many things, you know? Like, if I were to come across a blind person now and we were eating together, 
I would still be able to say your steak is at three o'clock, right? Because they they memorize how the clock looks and that's how they know where their food is on the plate. But so, um, and and people like Gloria who. Uh, oh, I should also say Kate Millett because she's another person that's been largely erased because I was about um, three months out of the nut house when I quite accidentally got to be in a class that Kate Millett was giving in Berkeley. And uh, I was still trying to get off the drugs and, you know, I was pretty messed up. And I went to this class and there was a lot of upper-class white you know, sort of Berkeley professor's wives there, and they would all go off with her and take her to lunch, and th there was all this sort of, like, uh, things that I wasn't a part of because I had to actually go back to work, right? I couldn't stay and have lunch. And so we had, she assigned us books, and one of the books, I'll never forget this book, oh, it's called um, La Batarde by Violette Le Duc, who's one of my favorite writers, and I had never read a book like that before. I was just like, I'm getting chills now <laughs> thinking about it. I mean, I read that book and I was just like, this is amazing. This is wonderful. Look what this woman is doing. I wonder what it looks like in French, you know? It's like, wow, you know? <laughs> and um, so I wrote this piece. Wrote, we were supposed to write papers. And so I wrote this piece just going on and on about how much I love Violette Le Duc. And I mean, she was so exciting and she was doing things with language that were impossible and, you know... So anyway, they came to, to the meeting, and um, the women there did not like Violette Le Duc. You know, and, and Kate had a way of being almost like a Buddha. You know, she would just sit like this and just watch everybody and listen, listen, listen. And then she finally, she stood up in the chair and she said, you're all wrong. And she read a piece that, part of what I had written, and... She, and and it was a course in which you were supposed to be reading and learning to write and so on. And she said, and she held the pages up and she said, and now this is a good writer. And I was like, just in absolute astonishment to be named as a writer by someone that I had so much respect for mm -hmm. and that, you know, I admired, but very much from a distance. And, um, and the other women were all really <laughs> angry and cranky about it, and they still didn't like Violette Le Duc. And, but that, when she said to me, this is a writer, I was no longer a crazy person, and I've never been back in a nuthouse since then. It was like she changed my life incredibly. By acknowledging who By acknowledging were. who I was. And, and, I, and I have to say, you know, she wasn't a woman of color, you know? That's important, you know? And in all the discussions everyone has about um, strife and sexism and all of it, one of the things that does not get said is how often a person who is called white has really helped someone who was not white and how their career began at that intersection of, of, of a white person saying to them, you're a writer. I mean, I, I know that in the Harlem Renaissance there were several people who are writers, that, that's the exact same thing that happened to them. So uh, when, when someone names you as a writer in that way, then that's what you have to be. You, know? you can't do anything else. You're stuck, you know? And I've been very grateful to her. And, and the funny part is, is that she hated poetry. She just hated poetry. She thought it was awful. And 
when I first they published Not Vanishing, I sent her a copy and I wrote on the fly leaf, I know you hate poetry, but maybe you'll be able to stand a little bit of this, you know? <laughs> and she wrote me back and said, I love it. That's all she said is I love it. So you want to tell us the story behind Not Vanishing? Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to figure out what to call my book and... Uh, we went to the university bookstore because I'm always going there. You can get books somewhat cheaper at the university bookstore than you can at regular bookstores at that time. Now, of course, it's different. But anyway, uh, there was a big display of Edward Curtis's phot photography book. And I think it was like 150 or $250 for this book. I mean, it was huge. It was like three inches thick and enormous. and Coffee table. A coffee table book, yeah. It was a coffee table all by itself. And... <laughs> And they had this uh, scrolling paper that someone had actually hand-lettered across the top that said, Vanishing Americans. And it was done with red ink and then gold ink around it, you know. And I got so mad. And, and I sort of said, I'm, we're not vanishing. And I was like, that's the name of the book, Not Vanishing. And uh, I had some trouble with uh, the press because they had gotten a... Uh, artist person to do the cover and the cover was going to be lavender and blue with letters like neon signs that would say not vanishing and I looked at that and I said that's not my cover and I made them accept the cover that I designed so the I mean I had been in marketing uh, as a young woman working and I knew that red was the color that everyone is attracted to immediately so I said I want a red cover <laughs> And uh, I want my signature, because your signature carries uh, so much of you. And we had kind of a rocky relationship, me and Press Gang. We, we never really, I mean, I would not be a writer who could have said about them, oh, they were wonderful, they were supportive, they were really there for me. We had a lot of arguments about what I could include in, in my books and... Uh, they had a very, um, I'm not sure what, what this mindset is, but it's very um, proper. And, you know, it, it struck me as so odd that, you know, to me, being a feminist is a revolutionary act, which breaks out everything, breaks all the, but they still wanted to be nice girls. I guess that's the, the way that I would see it is that they're, there's a split in the feminist movement between nice girls who go on to the academic world and get jobs and do nice things and are nice people and, you know, are polite and all that. And people like myself who they are, the rule. you know, uh, people like myself who are more connected to the streets and to uh, what I would call real life, although that's a bit insulting to them. I mean, they have real lives as well, but. I guess what I mean is uh, it, it's a class distinction, I, I guess I would say, more so than a race distinction. It's a distinction of, um, you know, when I was growing up, anything was done to me. There was no holes. There was no rules. And, and I grew up then being a person who could do anything, right, who, who did not have... Uh, I mean, the first time I ever went to a fancy dinner, I, I watched everybody 
eating to figure out what, you know, what fork, do you, you know, how do you do this? You know, like, there's four fucking forks there. What's that for? You know, <laughs> it's like, I had no idea what, you know, any of that stuff was. I mean, I, the, I, this uh, first dinner that I went to, they had this silver egg in the middle of the table and I was fascinated with it. It was this really ornate egg, you know, it was big, huge thing. And I was, I finally said to the person next to me, what is that? And she sort of went, that's the butter. You know, like, of course, everyone knows that's the butter. And I'm like, the butter? <laughs> and I, I said, please pass the butter. You know, so somebody came and uh, they had white gloves on and they passed this egg towards me. And the egg flips over and underneath on a pierced tray is little squares of butter. And then underneath that is ice. And I was so, I've wanted one of those ever since. <laughs> Never seen anyone had one for sale, but I love that thing. And you know, you you touch this little sort of ivory button, and it flipped back, and then it would come back again. You know, and I was just like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. You know, <laughs> so I have fascination with weird ab aspects of colonization, I guess. <laughs> but so I'm not a person who is, as they say, gone to finishing school, and. Um, and I'm more well-read than almost all the English professors I meet because I do read all the time. I mean, I read in the bathroom, you know, I read going to bed, I read in the car, you know. I am a voracious reader. And uh, so there's a lot of uh, amusement on my part when I get in academic situations. Not this academic situation, because this was completely different from anything I've ever experienced of, um, I do this thing that's kind of, I guess it's mean. I, I pretend to be dumb. You know, I play to their stereotypes. You know, we go out to dinner for the faculty and I'm just dumb, 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 dumb and don't say too much. And then I get up and perform on the stage and I wipe them out, you know, and just, wow. And, you know, it's sort of a Wonder Woman kind of thing. You know, I get my bracelets on and I go and, uh, <laughs> So that that's a bit unfair of me. I probably should not continue that, but and now I won't be able to because it's been blown. But <laughs> <laughs> but I I have ways of playing. I have played with academia uh, all my life. Like I, one of my favorite drawings I've ever done is is hegemony, and it's a hedgehog. <laughs> because anyway, so I like. I like to play. That was one of the things that was wonderful about meeting Lenore this time for the first time because she plays as well. She plays even more than I do, and she's better at it. And so I really sort of got my comeuppance. It's like, well, there's somebody who plays better than you do. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to have to up your game yes. here. <laughs> Live up to Lenore. <laughs> um. I would like to just say two words and see how what it what it brings up in you. Okay. If if you're willing yeah, to play yeah. the game. Yeah. Um and I want yeah, I, I, I just wanna just say the words and not elaborate why I'm saying them. Right. Just to the give same. you the space to, to and if it doesn't res resonate that's fine too. But Okay. These two words are love and anger. Mm. 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 I've been angry 
a great deal of my life. And it took me uh, a long, long time to figure out that although I was focusing that anger on injustice and fighting injustice, that what I was really angry about is that I had not been loved. And that's kind of a humbling uh, realization. And when I met my partner, Sonny, uh, this is really a funny story. I had had a lot of relationships, and they were always conflicted and uh, a lot of arguing and, you know, uh, people would hit me and so on like that. And um, so the first Valentine's Day that Sonny and I were living together, she didn't get me a Valentine's Day card. She's not like, she's not a person who does any of that sort of stuff. And I was in a royal rage, you know. So she came home from work and I was just zzz, steaming, you know, and I stood over, where's my Valentine's card? And she just stared at me. And she said, I'm sorry. I didn't remember. And I was so deflated. You know, it was like, oh my God. What, what on earth was all that yelling and noise about? And we've never had an argument since. We disagree all the time, you know, but I've never yelled at her like that again because it, it for, for the first time in my life, someone was reasonable to me, and that forced me to be reasonable. And all of a sudden, it became possible to be a reasonable person. How did that happen? And I still can get really angry about, um, I mean, right after the election in, in 16, I was stomping around the house, broke some dishes. You know, I was really angry that the Electoral College had betrayed the entire country. But at any rate, um, and I can get really angry with people still when they do things that are abusive. But what I've learned now is that uh, I go for a walk and or I write in my journal and I just pour the anger out and let it go and let it be and not necessarily express it to the other person. Uh, partly because I've realized that my anger is really, my anger doesn't frighten me, right? And anger from other people doesn't frighten me. I recognize anger, you know, I'm used to it. But most people have not lived with the kind of anger that I lived with. And so when I'm angry with them, they're like devastated, you know, they're like, you know, crawling across the floor trying to get a drink of water. And so I realized that I have to really, uh, and over the 15 years that Sonny has loved me, I've become less angry and less angry and less angry because um, she's never betrayed me, you know, and I, I'm still astonished by that fact, you know. She's never betrayed me in any way. She always tells me the truth. I mean, it's like, how does that happen? It's, it's, it's to me, a miracle. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so... By loving me, she taught me how to love. And uh, now love is pretty much, anger doesn't, um, doesn't motivate me as it once did. Now I feel more like I'm motivated by love and trying to understand someone and um, 
I just wrote a poem because this woman that I was becoming friends with uh, said, uh, oh, I was reading Richard Wright. He's such a brutal writer. And I was really taken aback by that because he's a difficult writer and it's painful to read him, but I would not call him brutal, right? And so I wrote a poem in which I said, you know, I wouldn't call him brutal. I would call slavery and Jim Crow and, you know, all, all of that stuff brutal. And, um, and I haven't given her the poem and I'm not going to put her name on it because I, I've been very influenced by story te traditional storytellers because uh, one of the ones, one of the people that I've worked with was saying to me once, you know, we don't necessarily need to scold someone who's done something wrong. <clears throat> we just tell a story. And we use that person's behavior as the point of the story. Now, the only person who knows about that behavior is the person who did it. And so by listening to this story, they've understood that they did something wrong without any embarrassment, without any kind of finger pointing, without any kind of meanness. And that person will learn, therefore, because there's a place for them to learn. And I thought that's actually a really good way to, to approach things. So... I don't know if she'll even recognize herself in the poem, you know, and that's actually not important because the issue of of saying Richard Wright is not a brutal writer is 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 important, you know. That's the part that that's actually the most important. So, anyway, I I find that I have changed as I've aged, and a lot of that change has to do with gardening, as you know, we both talked about. Because when you are engaged in the art of growing things, they grow you. Absolutely. And uh, I was never a very patient person. I'm always, you know, like wanting to start it up and all that. And so gardening has taught me patience. And uh, I used to hate the color pink. I absolutely hated it you know it was like that's a girl's color I'm not a girl and now I love pink it's my favorite color you know it's in all my drawings so <laughs> you know um so the things that change you as a person are often not the things that you would think would change you you know I would never have thought you know 20 years ago that gardening would have made me a nicer person but it has <laughs> you know I just wanted vegetables and um uh, it's actually more expensive in the States to grow your own vegetables than it yes, is to it buy them. <laughs> but anyway, it's my, uh, I'm a gentleman farmer, as I joke. So We were talking um, yesterday also about um, how the work works, does, yeah. how the work does its own work. Yeah. So how do you see that for your own immense body of work? Like how... What's your relationship to, to work that you put out in the world? And uh, then that, that has, I mean, the same way you were talking about how people perceive you and, and the, the, the shedding of skin and right. what fame can do. We talked about that. Yeah. It's a very, fame can be very poisonous. And I've seen it eat, eat people up alive. And, you know, they, they stop writing. Because they're famous, right? 
And to me, that's been like, don't go down that road. You know, I want to keep writing. I mean, be on my deathbed, say, I'm dying <laughs> in my journal. <laughs> but uh, that would actually be a funny novel. I'm dying. <laughs> anyway, um, the, the relationship I've had has been very complicated because... First of all, many people cite my actual words from poems in their writing and don't footnote me, right? So my work has been used by many, many people, and my ideas have been used without rec recognizing that they were mine. And people have taken poems of mine. The, the, the worst sufferer is ceremony for a com completing a poetry reading where this one woman took out all of the native imagery and called it the gift, and she wanted to publish it in her book. Wow. And then there was another woman who put a poem up online, um, Today Was a Bad Day Like TB, and she left the first like five lines in and then changed the center part and then put the bottom part on, and she claimed it was her writing. So, I mean, there's been a lot of that kind of thievery and... Um, Oh, I don't know what to call it. Uh, something. Something. And I try to fight that as best I can when I find out about it. But uh, I don't necessarily... I'm not on the, the web, so sometimes somebody has to write to me and say, they're using your poem, you know, but they've called it their, their own. So, so I have a complicated relationship with that part of it. The other part of it is that so many people have said to me, your book saved my life. And, you know, I've held <laughs> Indian kids weeping in my arms uh, because they were so overwhelmed at meeting me. And that's deeply moving for me because that's what I want to do is I want to save lives. And so for me, I, I would rather have someone say, you saved my life, then win the Nobel Prize. You know, like th that's to me so much more important. And so there's that par part of it where, where you're saving lives because you're saying what really happens in the world, which does not get said very often. I mean, one of the things that I recognize about my own work is that I'm often saying things that people in two years will be saying, right? And it's not so much that I'm so smart, is that I'm paying attention. I'm watching everything. You know, I, I, um, uh, Linda Hogan said to me that I was one of the women who watches the world. And, and I do watch. I watch everything. You know, I, one of the reasons I'm so angry with the U.S. media right now is because we don't know anything about any other country in the world because it's all about Trump. We, we never got news about Canada, right? Because that's just the, the, you can't get books from Canada, you can't get records from Canada, you don't have to write to Canada or come up to Victoria or, you know, whatever. There's, there's a, a very bizarre hostility to Canada in the United States in the arts community. And, you know, there's, there's all these running jokes. Um, oh, he's a comedian from, from Saskatchewan or something, you know, and that's like supposed to be funny, you know. It's like, what? <laughs> I don't understand it. But anyway... Um, so I, uh, was really frustrated because the BBC World News, I turned it on as soon as I got here because we don't get that, you know, and, uh, and they were talking about 
stroke. No, no. I was so upset. I was like, I can't get away from this man. Anyway, um, so my work has gone out all over the world. It was translated into German. Uh, it's been translated into French and Spanish. Uh, sometimes I'm able to include those translations in my books because that's what I, I like to do. Uh, you know, it, it seems to me as though poetry doesn't belong to the poet. It belongs to the world. And you're just sort of the secretary, you know, scrawling down whatever comes through. I mean, there's a to me, there's this vast world of spirits and voices and something. I don't know what to call it. And that's the world I go into. And that world is what gives me what I write. And I don't even, you know, when I do writing workshops, I give people a lot of skill tips. But I don't know how to tell someone how to go to that world. I, I, I actually don't know because I oftentimes fall into it. You know, I'll be doing something. I'm washing dishes. I'm cooking a meal and I fall into that world and then the food burns, you know, and I, you know, or whatever. The dishes don't get washed. And and so that that other world of creativity, which is, well, you know that world. You know, I, I saw your, your drawings. You know that world. You know, it, it's it's a different place and it has no laws and it doesn't have sex or ethnicities or any of that stuff. It's it's uh, uh, magical and um, and profound and all. You know, I, I wish everyone could go to that world. There wouldn't be any more war. I think kids can go there easily. Yes, right? and then yeah. we learn to not go there. As, yeah, as I mean, there's there's a, a glass uh, shop in in Tacoma. The Museum of Glass, and they have a hot shop there, and so you can go and watch them making things. And one of the things they've started doing is making children's drawings. So kids uh, can get to, to do a drawing, and then the glass artists blow this drawing, and they've got some incredible pieces. They've got this one really long-necked cat with its eyes bugged out at the end. You know, it's, I mean, the, they're just amazing, amazing pieces. They're actually more interesting than most of the, the art that's done, right, is the kids' stuff. So I really would love if we could find some way to raise children so that they could keep that, that place inside of themselves instead of having it uh, destroyed. Because I really do think that if everybody in the world was a poet, there would be no war. I mean, everybody would be like, what is that word? You know, <clears throat> there, there's, there's, a, there's a necessity, a deep, deep necessity for what is called art in our lives. And it, it gets shoved to the side. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's so odd to me, you know, when people talk about funding for the arts, and I'm thinking, like, why would you fund anything else? You know, <laughs> it's like other than food, maybe. <clears throat> you know, um, it just, it just, I don't understand, you know. I would much rather have a thousand artists than uh, uh, a nuclear missile. You know, I, I don't see any point in nuclear missiles. We're coming to the end of ah. our time here, um, but maybe one last little bit would be 
as you're getting older, as we're all getting older, but as you're getting older and you have all this work behind you and all these connections and all these memories and all these gatherings and all these movements and uh, the struggles and the people coming together, what you were talking about earlier. And we had young people in, in, in the room with us in the right. past few days. How do you see the future? How do you see, where is this going? How do you imagine the future? Or what are your hopes for it? Are, where are we leaving them? Mm. Well, I, I would say that I don't want to say that my vision of the future is bleak <clears throat> because that's a terrible thing to say, but it is. My, my vision of the future is very bleak. Um, in my lifetime, when I was a kid, uh, I wrote about this recently, my auntie had a dahlia garden in her backyard, and I would go there and be covered with monarch butterflies, just covered with them, and little worms, and you know, and there was birds and um, rabbits, and and now the world feels so empty to me. I've seen two birds since I've been here, and it might have been the same bird twice. You know, there's this way in which the earth has been deprived of animals and plants. The, the earth is almost entirely covered in cement. I mean, it, it just, because when you cover earth with cement, it dies. It's dead under the cement, you know? And, and people don't seem to grasp that, that fact. I mean, I've had a really hard time being on this campus because they have those cement, cement, cement everywhere. There's no path to walk on on the earth. And uh, so I've been carrying mud around from the construction site. But my, my feeling is that uh, climate change, as they call it, is much worse than, than the scientists even realize. That, that for me, the increasing hurricanes and increasing earthquakes, they're telling me that, you know, that... It's possible. I mean, I sometimes wonder if if uh, the Earth will, I don't know, come apart at the seams before I'm dead. You know, in, probably in 20 years if I'm really lucky. Um, it, you know, the, the way in which human beings have abused the Earth is untenable. It's untenable. I, I have a car, but I almost never drive it because I'm so distressed at, 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 at the, whole, the whole structure. And um, I'm, I'm sort of lost. I mean, I, I recycle, you know, I'm, I keep all my vegetable scraps and meat and so on and make soup out of them, and I uh, recycle gray water from my kitchen sink and so like that. You know, so I'm very doing all the things that you're supposed to do, but with, at the same time, a very strong sense that this is kind of, you know, a circus, you know, it's not really going to affect. Uh, and I, 
Mm. I'm not so sure if it's a bad idea that humans become extinct. You know, it could happen, and mm, the way that we have made war on one another and sought to control each other and the earth is, is a very serious disease. I, Sunny has this thing that's so funny <clears throat> that she feels rich people are hoarders, that they're mentally ill. <clears throat> that hoarding money is literally a mental illness. And uh, <clears throat> so, I mean, I, I think that, that the, the inequality and, the, you know, there's starvation all over the world, and, and Bill Gates has a wall he can move in his house with the push of a button. That, to me, that's like something is seriously wrong. Uh, you don't need to move a wall with a push of a button. You just don't. That's all. And you don't need a gold-plated toilet seat or any of that nonsense. You know, it's it's uh, the the and and you don't need to be famous. You don't need to be wealthy. You don't need all of those things. What you need is to have loving, respectful relationships with the people that you are around. That's what you need. You know, and and all of the rest of it is. Um, it's just noise. One of the elders that I'm working with, um, who's an Amgis um, elder artist, um, and she speaks of the, um, the the fifth world that we're in the fifth world that the the earth has been through these cycles before, of having to shake off all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bye bye and, dinosaurs. And like a, a reboot kind of yeah. thing, and I I think the planet. Um, she knows what she's doing, in a way, right? Yeah, I know, and people have said to me, oh, it's so terrible, the earthquake, and I say, well, that's what needs to happen, you know? And because human beings are so greedy, myself included, I mean, I'm not innocent of greed, there's a lot of, you know, obviously if I have 2,000 pounds, or 20,000 pounds of books, you know, I'm greedy, <laughs> but... um <laughs> and the more that more now, right? I mean, every time we go to the used used uh, habitat for humanity, I'm always scoping out the bookcases, you know, because we have we literally have books stacked in the kitchen counter, you know, they're just everywhere. Because Sunny reads a lot as well; she reads differently than I do, but um, you know, she likes to read all of that political books about conspiracy theories and the secret behind this and all that kind of stuff. And she also reads medical a lot of medical stuff uh, for her work. So she has a lot of medical books. But um, the, the greed that we have allowed to inhabit us is actually what I think is destroying the earth because I think wars are fueled by greed. Certainly all of the, the nonsense in Iraq was about greed for oil. And uh, so... So what I, I feel, you know, like that young girl that was carrying the sign that I speak for trees, and I said to, you, to her, you do realize that cardboard is made from trees? And she looked at me like, you know, and I thought, oh, Lord. So moments like that make me really depressed and, and, and fear um, the, for the earth, right? 
and not so, no, that's not true. I don't fear for the earth. I'm not afraid for the earth. The earth's going to be fine. I fear for humanity. And I, I actually have thought since I was maybe 10 or 12, I, ha I just developed this fondness for dinosaurs. I draw them all the time, and I, I really love dinosaurs because I feel like that's what we, I mean, we are going to be the next coal, <laughs> the next oil or whatever, and the next whatever that happens here. Because uh, I, th I think humanity is on a road to extinction and has been for quite some time. Uh, because if you look at it from a long, long arc, you see that there's uh, 55 tribes that were made extinct in 1880, you know. So, so and, and all of these animals, like the bees um, and, and the monarch butterflies, are dying out, you know. And, and the salmon. And the salmon. And we cannot live without bees. Literally, we cannot live without bees. If they don't fertilize our food, we've got nothing to eat. So um, I have, uh, I have a, a hundreds and hundreds of bees in my garden because I, I haven't used pesticides or any of that. I don't use it even fertilizer for uh, 15 years. And I grow things. I mean, it's like all over the place and the landlady wants to chop it down and you literally cannot see the road from 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 the house, and bees are always all over there. And uh, they had a big article in the Seattle paper about how all the native mason bees were gone. And I'm I have hundreds of them in my yard, but I'm not telling anybody about them, you know, because I don't want them to come. And You're hoarding the bees. Now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want them to be safe, and and I I don't trust science to keep things safe. That's the thing I would say about science. It's not, uh, science has not been very safe for us as human beings. It's interesting, you know, to understand how things work, but at the, at the price of those things existing at all is not, it's not worth it, you know. So I really would love to say that I'm, you know, the world's going to be fine, you know, humanity is going to go on, but I don't expect my work to, go, to, to survive beyond my lifetime. And I think that mostly what I'm trying to do as a writer is help people to see what's really happening, right? Because the media completely destroys reality constantly, so at least if you can see what's happening, you have some grounding in reality and some ways to try and figure out how to protect yourself and how to, um, I guess, live a good life as long as we get to have lives, you know? For me, it goes back to the notion of impermanence anyway. Yeah. Right? Yeah, everything and changes. It's always a, changing. So in a way... I know it sounds terrible to say, but it's okay. Yeah. Because if you understand impermanence, we everything in nature is impermanent anyway, right? Yeah. There's life cycles, and 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 if you can be at at ease or at peace with the idea of impermanence, yeah. We have to stop. We eh? have to stop. But I just want to. This say, has been so much fun. Yeah, and Goa for for sharing your words. Yeah, and, this has been a and, great time. Yeah. 
it's been a, a real pleasure to spend time with you. Yes, we're going to have to do this more. All right. So I think I can stop this. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Christos by Franz Trapanier. Again, I'm Joshua Whitehead, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. The interview you had just heard was recorded during the Tea House Symposium Wisdom Council. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Trin Delaney, Rebecca Jelaine, Isabel Michalski, and Joshua Whitehead. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. And if you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.